welcome back to Kerrang! Back Issues. My name is Stephen, your host, and this week we will be delving into another wonderful issue of Kerrang! for your delectation. The issue we will be looking at this week is issue number 487, March 26, 1994, £1.40. pence. Still cheap, still a bargain. If you want to get in contact with us, then you can get us through Instagram at Kerrang! Back Issues. Twitter at KerrangPod, uh, email, the old-fashioned email, at KerrangBackIssues at gmail.com. I have been having a lovely time on Instagram over this past week or two. I know that I poo-pooed it for a while. Um, I mean, I poo-pooed it because, uh, personally, I just didn't want to be on there for a bit. You know, mental health, staying away from all that stuff. You know, all the good stuff. But being on there has actually been really fun. Uh, I've been having some nice chats with people and uh, having some good laughs about some stupid old crap that we used to read, which is Kerrang! Magazine. Speaking of Kerrang! Magazine, cover stars for this week, uh, Bruce Dickinson, world exclusive, Bruce Dickinson, maiden man, back and ballsy. Also, therapy for Donington, Alice Cooper, unholy LP exclusive, Soundgarden, backstage at the super unknown secret, secret show, Red Hot Chili Peppers, UK show details, Violence, Paranoia, Misery, It's Nine Inch Nails. Also, a Slayer, new lineup, eight page poster riot. By the way, I don't think Kerrang! Magazine is a load of crap. I will hold my hands up and say that it probably kept me sane for most of the 90s as a teenager trying to find my way through that difficult, difficult period. And I wouldn't have found most of the bands that I probably ended up loving if it weren't for Kerrang! Uh, so that's my, there we are, that's my love letter to you, Kerrang. You're not crap. Love you, really. Cheers. Starting with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first, and old Black Eyes is back. Yeah, it's he who dies for a living, Alice Cooper. Set for a June release, Big Al's new studio opus, his 20th, is titled The Last Temptation, and it's business as unusual for the coop. It's actually going to be the first real concept album I've done since Welcome to My Nightmare, announces an excited Alice, referring to his classic 75 album, and it's accompanied by a comic book. Neil Gaiman, who does the Sandman comic, is doing it. It'll be a three-part series. Neil was there during writing sessions and everything. Isn't there a virtual reality video relating to this project? We actually got involved in that and realised it would take about a year and a half to engineer. It's unbelievable how complicated it is. We delayed the album for four months to wait for the game to come along, but it took forever. It may come out later on. Alice's last two records, Trash 1989 and Hey Stupid 1991, feature guest appearances from Slash, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue and Steve Vai. This time out, there's just one star guest. Chris Cornell from Soundgarden did a couple of songs with me, reveals Alice. I used everybody else up on the last two. It's funny, I listen back to these albums and think, gee, I didn't really need that, he laughs, so that album is more personal. But Chris was great, real easy to work with, what a voice. He came in with a couple of songs which really fit the album, Stolen Prayer and Unholy War. Now, I went ahead and did a little bit of research, cheers Wikipedia, and looked up the Last Temptation album um, by Alice Cooper, and it does and did feature the song Lost in America. Now, I remember watching Top of the Pops uh, with my dad actually, and the this song came on and we just stared at each other and just laughed and laughed and laughed. I will read you the first verse from this song. I can't get a girl cause I ain't got a car. I can't get a car cause I ain't got a job. I can't get a job cause I ain't got a car. So I'm looking for a girl with a job and a car. Don't you know where you are? Lost in America. 
Stop Press Now and Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Alice in Chains, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soundgarden and Rollins Band phew, are all to perform at a phenomenal mega metal US bash marking the 25th anniversary of the legendary Woodstock Festival. The original site has been secured for the event which is already being billed as Woodstock 2 and will take place on the weekend of August 13th and 14th. The phenomenal lineup will see some of the biggest names in hard rock playing on the same stage and is certain to attract fans from all over the world. The capacity for the event is thought to be around a quarter of a million. Plans at this stage are still sketchy with confusion arising over rumours that two separate festivals are currently vying for the Woodstock 2 name. Full story next week. Chilies and Therapy Summer Assault The Red Hot Chili Peppers are set to headline a new metal festival taking place in Nottingham on August the 20th. Details are still sketchy at this point, but Mayhem can reveal that the US Funksters have been approached to headline a four-band bill taking place at the Trent Bridge Cricket Ground. I know for a fact that this gig didn't go ahead because Fer um, Therapy, excuse me, Red Hot Chili Peppers headlined Reading that year, Reading 94, um, without using this whole mayhem to mention my family. I think my brother went to that Reading 94 uh, and all of Red Hot Chili Peppers wore light bulbs on their heads and he said it was brilliant. More hot summer festival news just in, Irish rock trio therapy have been confirmed to play this year's Donington Monsters of Rock Festival which will now feature six bands instead of five. Promoters NCP had originally insisted that the June 4th festival would feature just, just five bands and have now moved the barriers. They're currently negotiating with several bands for the final place on the bill. The sixth act will probably open the festival. Nirvana have rescheduled their impending UK tour. The announcement was made on Tuesday, March the 15th, just days before the sellout shows were due to kick off in Manchester. The new dates are as follows. Birmingham, Aston Villa Leisure Centre, April 12th, 13th. Manchester GMX 14, Glasgow SEC 15, Brixton Academy 17, 18, 19, 20. Following these dates, the band travelled to Europe to fulfil touring commitments but returned to the UK to play Cardiff on May 9th and Dublin on the 10th. A Dublin venue has yet to be confirmed. All tickets for the Nirvana tour remain valid but only for corresponding shows. For example, people with tickets for the third Brixton show, originally April 5th, will now be admitted on April 19th. An official statement concerning the rescheduled date reads as follows. Kurt Cobain is restored to full health and is looking forward to touring the UK. Nirvana would like to apologise for any inconvenience and distress caused to their fans. They understand the disappointment that all this has caused, however they have promised to give their British fans the show of their lives. Nirvana are expected to release a new single to coincide with the live dates, probably a remix version of Penny Royalty, a track called from their latest LP, In Utero. In the meantime, US indie stars Hole, who are of course fronted by Kurt Cobain's wife Courtney Love, have announced a full UK tour. They play Glasgow Tramway April 4th, Newcastle Riverside 5th, Manchester University 6th, Wolf Wolverhampton Wolfram Hall 8th, Sheffield Leadmill 9th, London Astoria 2 10th. The date time with the release of a new whole album, Live Through This, which is preceded by a new single, Miss World, available this week. Celtic Frost, one of the most influential extreme metal bands of the 80s, have split up. The reason? The foursome's inability to land a new recording deal. Main man Tom G. Warrior explains, A couple of years ago, the whole band relocated to Texas in an effort to get that deal, after we left Noise. It was a huge mistake. Basically, nobody out there cared for Celtic Frost. Despite the fact that our last two albums for Noise, Vanity, Nemesis and the compilation Parched with First, Am I and Dying sold extremely well. We cut two demos with six songs total which I thought was the strongest material the band had done in ages. We were ready to do the natural follow up to 87's Into the Pandemonium album but there were no labels interested. Then we got what we thought was a big breakthrough. 
One major label expressed a serious interest. We began discussions and everything seemed to be progressing well. But then for no apparent reason, the guy we were talking to stopped taking our calls and refused to return messages. To this day, I don't know why. When this happened, the intense disappointment just led to the band falling apart. Kiss My Ass has been confirmed as the title for the forthcoming and much anticipated Kiss tribute LP. Out through Phonogram on June 13th, the album features Lenny Kravitz and Stevie Wonder, Garth Brooks with Kiss, Extreme, Anthrax, Lemonhead, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Jim Blossoms, Dinosaur Jr., Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Faith No More, Rage Against the Machine, and Tool. The Faith No More, Rage Against the Machine Tool song features Bill Gould on bass, Tom Morello on guitar, drummer Brad Wilk, and Maynard James Keenan on vocals. Primus frontman Les Claypool has been working with the original Primus lineup on a new project called Sausage. <laughs> the, res- <laughs> the result of this typically bizarre collaboration, which in no way affects Claypool's work with the current incarnation of Primus, is a new LP. Riddles Are Abound Tonight, released through East West on April the 11th. Issued in conjunction with Interscope Records and Claypool's own label, Prawn Song, Riddles draws in pro- inspiration from many choice Primus cuts. Tour news now, and Jawbox, the Washington DC post-hardcoreists, make a one-off appearance at the London Islington Powerhouse April 1st. It will be the band's debut UK show and will be followed by a full UK tour. The Jawbox have released a new album, For Your Own Special Sweetheart, which includes the latest single, Savory, amongst its 13 tracks. Blaggers ITA and Press Gang play a Hunt Saboteur's benefit gig at the Harlow Square on March 26th. The Existentialists Save the Fish and Mud Bell play a charity gig at the Wrexham Memorial Hall on March 23rd. Record releases and Leeway, the veterans of the New York hardcore scene, released their third LP through Music for Nation's new label Bulletproof on March 28th. Entitled Adult Crash, it contains 10 new tracks and is likely to be promoted with UK live dates around the spring. Also signed to Bulletproof are Cincinnati 5-piece Simple Aggression, whose debut LP Formulations in Black has just been released. Big Shot have a demo of their Mr. Big Extreme Inspired Hard Rock on Sale at £2.70 from N. Dolman at 45 Manor House Park, Codzall, Wolverhampton, WVA1ES. Checks to M. Dolman. At the gates, the Swedish death metalers release a new LP, Terminal Spirit Disease, through Peaceville in June. Cheap Trick, the US pop rock legend, release a brand new album through Warner Brothers on March 28th. Entitled Woke Up With A Monster, the band comprising Robin Zander on vocals, Rick Nielsen on guitar, bassist Tom Peterson and drummer Bun E. Carlos say the LP is a return to their glory days. We now come to Coast to Coast, the hottest US news as it happens. This week we're in Los Angeles with Lisa Johnson. It's 5am and under normal circumstances I'd lay my head to pillow at this hour, but I'm putting pen to paper to gripe about all the places I wish I'd been this past week. Like Pensacola, Florida, that's where Pearl Jam headlined a Rock for Choice benefit concert alongside L7. Rock for Choice is an organisation whose founder members include L7, is dedicated to keeping the women's choice regarding unwanted pregnancies safe and legal. Pearl Jam flew in from Denver hours before taking the stage, which is more than can be said for the band's equipment. It seems their guitars were waylaid somewhere in the Midwest, but luckily they were located by an ever-efficient road crew and arrived shortly before showtime. 
This was the hottest ticket in Pensacola, believe you me. The 7,683 tickets available sold out in just 58 minutes, so you can imagine the high level of excitement when L7 came on. Since the band has just completed their new album, Hungry for Stink, it's a sure bet that they played a few new ones live. Wish I could tell you which ones, but I wasn't there. And even if I was, you wouldn't know them anyway. Pearl Jam, I have it on good authority, performed all their faves, Alive, Jeremy, Daughter, Glorified G, Animal, etc. in what was described by one witness as an angry, aggressive set. Singer Eddie Vedder managed to put a hole in the wooden stage by hitting it repeatedly with the mic, and guitarist Mike McCready had even more reason to make the gig a special date, for Pensacola is where he was born. Perhaps that what prompted his destructive behaviour. He knocked over his guitar stacks not once, but twice. He's the wild one these days. Another place to be was the Hollywood Club Helter Skelter. Nine Inch Nails played an oh-so-tight-lipped super-secret show for fans only. So exclusive was the club date that the band's record company were told not to come and that if they did, they wouldn't be allowed in. I don't think that sat too well with the higher-ups at Trent Reznor's US label Interscope, especially since they've just shelled out a mint making the new Nine Inch Nails LP The Downward Spiral. According to one of the mere 500 people who got in to see the gig, the Nails played for an hour, and judging by the screams of glee from the crowd, Trent Reznor is including some tracks of Pretty Hate Machine in the live show. Look out England. Okay, so one event I did manage to get to was White Zombie's final stop on what has turned into a two-year tour, and it was final in more ways than one. Not only is it high time the band made a new record, how sick they must be of playing Thunderkiss 65, but right after the gig drummer Philo got the boot. Rob Zombie is yet to release an official statement to the press. It was a big bummer, especially because the band was scheduled to play the R.I.P. magazine party the next day and had to pull out of it at real short notice. Although they were ending a massive 24-month tour, the band did have a few shows planned in Japan for April. Rather than cancel the mini-tour, they plan to find a quick replacement to fill in for the shows. They've already had offers from Danzig's Chuck Biscuits. Next week, New York. We come to a special piece now called Concerts Extra. On March the 12th, Soundgarden played a low-key gig in London to celebrate the release of their super-unknown opus. Liz Evans files this behind-the-scenes report. What better way to launch Soundgarden's super-unknown album than with a super-unknown gig? This event was so top-secret that not even the press knew where it was happening until a few days beforehand. Come the day and 2,000 people were screaming for more, but some of them had only discovered they were going during the last 24 hours. The Empire... Previously a BBC TV theatre which hosted Terry Wogan's Thrice Weekly Chat Show was still undergoing renovations to transform it into a modest-sized music venue. Inside the Empire is a luxurious place crammed with bars, lined in red velvet, and in a city starved of decent medium-sized venues, it was an obvious place to stage a warm-up gig for carefully selected Soundgarden fans. Due to officially open a week before the date of the Super Unknown show, the Empire was littered with half-empty paint pots, pieces of plastic tubing, and men in overalls rushing around to make the place fit for hundreds of marauding punters. Chosen from all over Britain by a selection process, the first of the lucky 1600 picked to attend began arriving at lunchtime, and by showtime were frozen solid and desperate for a drink. By 3pm on the day, waves of excitement were beginning to ripple through the freezing air. A black cab drew up and out spilled four Glaswegians clutching bottles of cider and grinning like fools. Huddled on the steps were knots of goose-pimpled army-booted devotees, refusing the warm welcome of the neighbouring pub for a first glimpse of their favourite band. Supporting act Artist The Spoon Man, who's featured on the current Soundgarden single Spoon Man and its promo video, could be seen peering through the glass doors onto the street outside. Plucked by bassist Ben Shepard, boo, from the streets of Seattle, where he's bucked at the public market down the waterfront for years. Artist originally made his British debut on Blue Peter and then the Paul Daniels show. Having travelled around the world, he's now based in a bus outside Seattle and is in England for a week, making his sole appearance tonight. 
On noticing him, some of the fans say hello and found themselves presented with little wooden ice cream spoons printed with Artis's phone number. Around 3.20, a black van with tinted windows zoomed ominously around Shepherd's Bush uh, Green. Snapper Romford Harry's snatched up his shooting gear and scuttled round to the stage door in true paparazzi style to capture the band climbing off the bus. Meanwhile, a pack of eagle-eyed fans legged it round the corner, demanding autographs from their uh, heroes. One of them literally screamed with joy when she cornered Cornell. Can't we go in yet? inquired guitarist Kim Tile. Once inside the theatre, Soundgarden whistled off for a sound check, while manager Susan Silver, aka Mrs Chris Cornell, approved the lighting effects and sorted out some remaining business. After a couple of cable TV items, Cornell disappeared back to his hotel while the others sought out refreshment. By 7.30, the hall began filling up with artists due on at 8pm for his 15-minute slot. Cries of exclamation and surprise greeted the Spoon Man, whose playing involves his whole body and a mad dance of rhythm, <laughs> rhythm and cutlery. 45 years old with a shaved head and the most incredible blue eyes you've ever seen, he's a highly unusual artist and briefly lifted the evening into another dimension. By the end, the crowd were chanting and even singing Spoonman at him as he bowed flamboyantly before tripping off. When Soundgarden took the stage, the atmosphere was buzzing. Laying into the new super unknown material, aside from Jesus Christ pose, Cornell's acoustic version of Mind Riot, and a select few other bad motor finger cuts, they aired some of their best material today. Maintaining a slightly mellow undercurrent throughout, which is part of Soundgarden's hypnotic secret, they connected perfectly through aggression, rhythmic tension, and a psychedelic sensibility, which has really flourished with the new songs having come to fruition with Shepard's now integral involvement. Following the weird, warped, and wonderful Hatter project last year with drummer Matt Cameron, Shepard has intensified that element of Soundgarden which has never quite belonged on this planet. Dispensing with the excessive thrills which often clog up brilliant music in a live situation, Soundgarden clicked in instantly, icking out the sweat with My Wave and Let Me Drown, thickening up the mood with the more melancholic Fell on Black Days, dropping in a characteristic hit of ridiculousness with Kickstand and joining up with artists for Smooth Man. After nearly two hours and two encores, they left a still hungry crowd with ringing their ears to splash their way out of a pool of beer beneath the dazzling house lights. An excellent band, a memorable evening, there's no point in uh, being flowery about it. Next time they'll have their light show which makes Shepard feel like he's in a disco. So if you weren't lucky enough to have witnessed tonight's very special performance, make sure you get in on the act. You won't see Artis, which is a real shame because in an ideal world, he'd have been on the whole tour. But you will be taken into the super unknown. Get yourself afraid. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts, and we begin this week with Paradise Lost and Crowbar live at the Bristol Beer Keller on Wednesday, March 16th. This concert gets a high voltage out of five, which is a four out of five, and the review is by Chris Watts. Look at Crowbar. It's the new face of Anselmo Metal. It's the Warpings. It's Crowbar, and it wants your lunch. Crowbar are Razorbacks in all but form. The mythical saber-toothed pig jackal lurks in the shadows behind Crowbar's two fat boys. Kurt Weinstein, vocals guitar, and Todd Strange bass are huge, as huge as the sky, and they sound ill. In fact, Crowbar could be a torturous and lingering furnace of grinding metal machinery. Right now, however, there is little between the Razorbacks' two yellow eyes to suggest that the New Orleans Quartet could eventually lumber out of the clubs and straddle the world. Their size isn't even that imposing after a while. The most worrying thing about Crowbar is that they could go down in pieces and be best remembered for their monumental cover of Led Zeppelin's No Quarter Alone. That would be a shame. Crowbar have the Rottweiler heart to slug it out on a grander platform than this, but they are not sufficiently sinister uh, just yet to consolidate this initial thunder. 
Paradise Lost know their strengths and hope the weaknesses won't get in the way of their sure beautied ascent into the ranks of unremarkable Brit metal hopefuls. By embracing the trappings of trad, spray painted black jeans, hair like singed straw and walls of amplification, Paradise Lost have found favour with the loyal legions of fans who like their music as fashionless as possible. The howls of derision that greet those first familiar chords of Nirvana smells like teen spirit over the PA tonight are proof that Paradise Lost are playing for committed rivet heads. Yet by also shading their metal with the lights, lyrics and imagery of goth, Paradise Lost remains separate from the nerd herd. It's rare to see a smattering of piss-headed cider punks and kitbag crusties at a trad metal show, but it is a show, if not a band, for all tribes. Nick Holmes is greeted by his disciples like a returning gladiator. You can virtually see his chest swelling with the pride of a mangy lion. Holmes might have the power to breathe life into your hand in mine and sweetness, but he hasn't the depth or the urgency to transcend his own lyrical nonsense. Similarly, the show teeters precariously when the band stride off stage for the taped instrumental workout and precision light show, light show mid-set. If anything, it is pretentious drama. But Paradise Lost lower their heads, squeeze out those glistening riffs and batter this hungry crowd senseless. When that fail-safe double bass drum kicks you low in the stomach, when those evil guitars meshes one and quit aping Metallica's more intricate excesses, when Holmes himself self stops twirling his microphone stand like a girl, then Paradise Lost are thrilling. The true metal blitzkrieg. Paradise Lost are canny operators. Clever bastards. The next review this week is for Rush, live at Madison Square Garden, New York, on Tuesday, March the 8th. And this review gets electrocution out of five, I think. Is that electrocution? Uh, it's number five. Yeah, electrocution out of five, which is five out of five. This review is by Don K. It's only been two years or so since Rush last visited this parish, but you would think they'd been away for ten, judging by the roar of the crowd as the lights dimmed and a nut and bolt image from the cover of Counterparts began to fly across the screen, behind the band as they burst into Dreamline. That was a long sentence. Indeed, Rush brought along a bunch of their usual tricks this time around. A slew of visually arresting films unwinding behind them, giant bobbing bunnies and a superb light show. But the band themselves played with renewed vigour and looseness. I couldn't believe my own eyes, but there was the normally distant Geddy Lee headbanging furiously, running and leaping across the boards during Stick It Out, leaning over the lip of the spacious stage and playing to the fans in a newly energised fashion. Guitarist Alex Lifesome was also more animated and in good humour, shoving Geddy off the mic to sing the finale of Closer to the Heart, and then introducing his bandmates as Jamie Farr and behind the drums Karen Carpenter. Ah yes, the man behind the drums, wearing some kind of alien skullcap. Neil Peart remains as cool and precise as ever, and his performance remains among the finest in the realm of percussion. Rush concerts are truly the only shows I've ever attended where no one gets up for a piss or another beer during the drum solo. The set tonight is a little more eclectic than the Presto tour of four years ago, jettisoning hits like Subdivisions and Distant Early Warning, in favour of lesser media album tracks like Analog Kid and Mystic Rhythms. A huge helping of counterparts is also featured. Six tracks in all, and the band stays in mischievous spirits by teasing the audience with bits of hemispheres during a majestic Zandu, then ending the final encore YYZ with a snippet of uh, Cygnus X1. They don't go all the way back to the, in the mood tonight, but we do get a brilliant The Trees, an uplifting limelight, and a poignant time standstill. There's even kiss-like columns of fire and exploding sparklers, something Rush have held back from in the past. It's all one great big rock show, unfortunately hampered by an overly loud sound mix that rendered the more intricate songs muddy. Maybe Rush just wants to rock out, but they shouldn't deny their fans the complexities they love. Whatever next, Slayer covers. Techno fear, violence, paranoia, misery. 
Welcome to the nightmare world of Nine Inch Nails. Stefan Shirazi gets inside the head of main man Trent Reznor to discover the dark truths about the controversial new Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral. We all want Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor, the pale, vulnerable, new god of industrial hard rock to be some bucked up little psychopath. The latest Nine Inch Nails release, a full length trip into the depths of human despair called The Downward Spiral, leaves the image of a man wandering around with pent up aggressions coursing through his veins. One step away from exploding into rapid gunfire at some suburban shopping mall. We'd love Trent Reznor to be our own premier pariah, an intellectually superior devil of doom. We'd love Trent Reznor to have some fucked up little head trip, some fucked up views, a fucked up past and a fucked up life. We'd love to hear that Trent Reznor's some weird violent sadist who likes to fuck in bondage and enjoys the pain. We'd love Trent Reznor to be something more than flesh and blood, some steel and rubber and leather perhaps. Surely a man so passionately vitriolic and aggressive, so extraordinarily creative, so dialed in yet so 90s cold and clinical, must be a biomechanoid. Not of this earth, the reality, Trent Reznor is a small, slim, sharp man who is riding the same train we all are. He has simply found catharsis in performance, and as a result has become a unique artist. Reznor has a single-minded desire to achieve what he wants. He leaves you in no doubt that those who stand in his way will not be around him for long. The downward spiral is, says Reznor, very cathartic. It's from me. I was around 13 when I realised I could express how I felt for a musical instrument, he recalls. I was a trained pianist and I'd get into trouble because the way I played pieces was not the way you were meant to play them. I'd add inflections to it, play around with it, and you weren't meant to do that. I always had a curious nature. I wasn't really a nerdy kid as much as I was the kid who was always in the art study school, listening to music and hanging out. I was a bit of a loner and I hated school. I have no friends from that era, even now. Although I don't regret being brought up in that situation, it probably saved me from being a heroin addict or killing myself at an early age because that stuff wasn't around. Growing up was like being in the camp for 18 years. You hear there's a world out there, you hear there's a place where things happen, but you can't get there because you don't know where there is. At some point I decided to use the cliche, you only live once. I didn't allow myself to get bogged down in burdening relationships, jobs and friends I couldn't leave. My family wanted the best for me and I didn't want to go to school. I was going to be a fucking rock musician. Odds are you're going to be playing the local bar until you're 45 years old, but I remember really believing in myself. Reznor is a deconstructionist who enjoys ripping things down and reassembling them to suit a variety of moods and emotions. What would possess a young man to explore such musically expressive avenues as opposed to just strapping on a Les Paul and playing rock and roll songs? When I first picked up a guitar, I did just play rock songs. I had an idea of what I wanted to do, and I always felt I was outside everything. When I finally got off my ass and quit wasting time at 23 years old, I had to call my own bluff to see if, it, if I really had it in me. I'd never written a song before and had every excuse in the world not to. I was afraid it would suck, and then what would I do? That was kind of ingrained in me from learning piano, where most of the great pianists are shitty composers. They're great piano players, but they can't write to save their ass, and when they do, it's an embarrassing fumble into pretentiousness. That kind of fear was always inside me. I knew what I did and didn't like, but what if I didn't like what I wrote? Finally, I realised it was time to try. Then there was the question of what I had to say. Was it unique? I've no interest in sounding like anyone else, which isn't to say every idea I have, I have is original, because it isn't. Was simple hard rock too restrictive a genre, a genre for you to express everything you wanted to? I didn't think that per se. My instruments are computers, samplers, drum machines and technology. But live, it's certainly more fun to see someone playing the guitar and it's more fun to express yourself on stage with one rather than tapping a fucking computer. But when I started Nine Inch Nails at the age of 23, working in the studio, I had the nights to fuck around with. I was really into electronic music at the time. David Bowie's Live was probably the single greatest influence on the downward spiral for me. I got into Bowie at the Scary Monsters era, then I picked up Low and instantly fell for it. I related to it on a songwriting level, a mood level, and on a song structure level. That got me into Iggy Pop, 
Stuff like The Idiot and Lou Reed's Transformer era. I went back to old Velvet Underground music I'd missed. On low, Bowie exercises inner demons through mellow but very intense pieces of music. I like working within the framework of accessibility, and songs of course, but I also like things that are more experimental and instrumental, maybe. You may still be expressing extreme emotions, but instead of loud guitars, it's the silence of frustrate. When you think it's going to explode and it doesn't, it's over. Will your work always be so dark and cathartic? I thought about that. This record was an unpleasant experience. I came up with the analogy that it was like climbing down a manhole and pulling the cover over my head. When I'm in the studio, I'm in there all the time, easily a minimum 14 hours every day. And I realised as I started that I was going to have to dig deep yet again. Will it always be that way? I don't know. Would it shock you that the few million people worldwide who revel in the misery of your music don't give a shit about a happy Trent Reznor? Well, I'm sure I wouldn't be happy to discover something like that, but Nine Inch Nails is set up to express those negative things. I'm not always angry and I'm not always fucking depressed. A journalist once asked me, what do you have to be miserable about? You've got a big record deal, you've got a successful band. You could tell that this journalist hasn't received anything he's ever set out to get. If he had, he'd have learned that achieving your goal isn't everything you dream of. As far as the downward spiral goes, all I know is I made a small scale, personal, potentially ugly record that reflected how I felt. All I hope is that there are people who'll think, wow, I'm not the only person who thought those things. Some of those ugly things are things you wouldn't want to tell your mum, your friends, or even your lover. But it's no public fucking service either. It's just what I felt. More than any previous Nine Inch Nails release, the downward spiral centers on the concept of control, physical domination, sex as a control, mental slavery. If you think about it, every society is based on control, which equals power. Churches tell you to do this and that, or the punishment will be going to hell. In every relationship you get into, some, uh, someone wants to control it. I'm aware of it. I'm addressing it. I'm challenging it. I don't know what's made me feel this way, but every time I'm told I can't do this or do it that way, I inherently want to know why. Put it this way, I was a bad employee and uh, it wasn't because I wouldn't work hard. It was because what I was being told was dumb. So is the intellectualization of Nine Inch Nails, the downward spiral, and ultimately Trent Reznor amusing or trying? I guess Reznor smiles. I'm flattered in the sense that there's something to talk about. We now come to communication, everyone's favourite part of the magazine. Do you think Ben Shepard from uh, Soundgarden is an ass? Do you think Motley Crue and Bon Jovi have a place in Kerrang? Do you think that Clawfinger should probably think twice about what, the na what they name their song titles? Do you think that Paradise Lost should probably sack all of their roadies for being disgusting humans? Well, come and join your fellow smelly moshers and let's see what's pissed them off this week. Letter of the week this week begins, I'm pissed off. Why? Let me explain. Twice this week have I walked into my local record shop to purchase some records. The first time was to get the brilliant new Soundgarden album. I go in, ask if they had it on vinyl, and was told it was £10.99. pence. What the fuck are the record companies on? The CD was only £1 more expensive. The same with the new Nine Inch Nails album. It cost £12.99 on vinyl. For fuck's sake, what a crock of shit. Why does vinyl cost so much? Because record companies don't want to make it anymore. What exactly is wrong with vinyl? Poor sound quality? Then why the high price? I urge you all to buy vinyl. Fuck these record companies. John from Lancaster. And the editor says, Unfortunately, even after a government inquiry, there seems to have been nothing done to stop the fixing of high prices for vinyl. And yours is a feeling shared by many vinyl lovers. A Kerrang cap is on its way for your letter. To Tom and Jamie, communication, Kerrang 486. What do you mean, die cheerleader, don't play Wales? Okay, 
So we've not been to Wales this year, but we've not done any UK dates so far. Last year, though, we came to Wales three times. In fact, once for each tour we did. They were all blinding shows, excellent audiences and great fun. I know we all ended up so drunk that we didn't know what country we were in. But what's your excuse? We will definitely be back in Wales later this year, so check Kerrang's tour news and gig guide this time. Cheers, die cheerleader. I think it's about time you showed respect to the greatest band of all time, Hanoi Rocks. They are one of the most influential bands of all time. They're one of Sebastian Bach's favourite bands. Mike Monroe has appeared on two Guns N' Roses albums and a Warrior Soul album, and a lot of LA bands ripped them off. How about a pullout of them instead of countless Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Pearl Jam and Nirvana pullouts? Stu Newport. So what if Nikki Six wears an Iron Cross? It was a German mark in a medal long before the Nazis and their anti-Semitism existed. Does Paul of Coventry, issue 485, think people in army surplus gear should see Schindler's List because of the lil flags on their shoulders? As for quoting Lemmy in your argument, he sports an Iron Cross on his bass, jacket and album cover. So who's the tosser now? Randolph from Hove. I had to write in to say the Wild Hearts were bloody brilliant at Leicester University on March the 12th. They gave it all they had, but what happened to half the audience? No response. Apart from the gang at the front, the rest of the audience stood around like statues. The boys deserved a better response than that. Come on Leicester rock fans, no wonder there's a shortage of good rock bands playing in Leicester. Let your hair down. The Mad Chef, Leicester. Communication issue 484 compelled me to put pen to paper. Firstly, just because a certain guitar player, i.e. Nuno, wishes to record a solo album, it does not mean it will be full of ego-wanking solos. Check out his work with Dweezil Zappa on Zappa's Confessions LP. Nick, County down. Gagging for a shagging this week? Could you please print a picture of the gorgeous Nancy Wilson from Heart? I'd indulge in a game of uppy-downy jig-jig with her anytime. An ugly, ignorant, no-brained arsehole from hell. On the fourth anniversary of Andy Wood's death, I think it's about time Mother Love Bone got the recognition they deserve. They wrote some amazing songs which put many current bands to shame and they were years ahead of their time. Andy's twisted vocals locked perfectly with Bruce and Stone's guitars. Wood was capable of running the listener through his own tangled emotions which complemented the music beautifully. My only regret is that I'll never get to see them live and that Andy died so young, but he'll never be forgotten. A Chloe dancer from Surrey. So Slash thinks that Johnny Funders was a little fucker and says he wasn't concerned when he died, eh? But lo and behold, he likes the New York Dolls, and I used to think he had class. This man, and I use the word loosely, loves Janis Joplin, enjoys getting fucked up, yet sneers at the guy who was the main force behind the Dolls, who unfortunately lost an ongoing battle with the needle. He even has a dig at Andy McCoy for fuck's sake. Mr Johnny Funders lives on in my memory as a tragic loss, always remembered, and always fucking cool. Slash has a one-track mind, money, have a nice life, arsehole, angel, one ex slash fan. Bollocks. In the Paradise Lost article, issue 485, Nick Holmes said not many girls put on Icon before going out on Saturday night. That's exactly what I put on, and Chaos AD, as my long-suffering friends will testify. Looking forward to seeing Gregor and co at the Astoria soon. Jules Swindon. Do drop in. New Cross, March the 5th, was definitely a night to be remembered. The band, Gunslinger, were very competent and polished, although the in-house PE sounded old and worn out. The lead singer Andy had an extremely powerful and melodic voice. Two songs showed off his and the rest of the band's talent for rock, namely Dark Horse and Dancing on Dynamite. I would say Andy should be guaranteed pride of place in the very near future in your gagging for a shagging slot. After the gig, 
The lads mingled with the rest of us for a beer, hence the moment for me to chat them up and find out that the next gig is at the Cartoon Croydon Rock Night on April 13th. Thanks for a great night, Susie Hammersmith. Having just bought and played Diamond Dave's Your Filthy Little Mouth, I felt I had to write in and let the readers know that Steve Beebe's recent Kerrang! Uh, review is bollocks. Sure, there's mellow moments, as in most rough releases, but so what? There's more songs. To say he's missed the point is ridiculous. To say he should change his style as fashion dictates, Alan Motley Crue, is even worse. He's doing what he wants to do and what he feels happy with. That is the point. We all know grunge is highly derivative of 70s British rock. Van Halen with Roth played a strong part in ending the reign of that music. The legendary Sabbath support slot? So why should Roth start imitating those very same bands? Rock and roll should be played for enjoyment, not money. All credit to Roth for being himself. Fashions and fads come and go. Diamonds are forever. Andy S. Nelson leads. Short and curlies. A big fuck off to Extreme at Donington this year. Pantera and Sepultura will piss on your fire. So too will the Wild Hearts if they play. Extreme hater spoke on Trent. L7 are heavy. Not another band who think making noise is all it takes. Wrong. Steve Parnell, London. Watching the Torino v Arsenal game, I couldn't help notice that Arsenal's nasty Nigel Winterburn looked remarkably like motorhead axeman Phil Campbell. Is there any truth in the rumour that Lemmy is to play in midfield next season? He must be about the same age as Paul Davis. Samantha Elliott from London. Ill communication. We now come to this week's eight page power packed pictorial poster pullout. It's Slayer 1994. In pretty much all of these posters, they've recreated uh, the Den from Bad News Tour. Um, part when they're filming the music video and the cameraman says turn to the camera and look mean well all of Slayer look really mean in these pictures and that's it let's move on to this week's cover star which is Bruce Dickinson Bruce on the loose when Bruce Dickinson left Iron Maiden last year he shocked the metal world what prompted his decision and what the devil has he been doing since in another Big K World exclusive Bruce tells Phil Alexander the truth about the Maiden split what makes him tick and why he's recorded three versions of his forthcoming album, Balls to Picasso. In the control room of a West London recording studio, Bruce Dickinson is waving an old crumpled tabloid newspaper around. Someone has dug it out to remind him of his past. It dates back to 1988, the year that Maiden headlined the Castle Donington Monsters of Rock Festival in the wake of their seventh son of a seventh son LP and its four top ten UK singles. The salacious saga unfolds, painting the Bruce of old as a hard-loving, rocking god who lost his virginity at the age of 17. Shacked up in Germany, he was ranked as a major fencer and was set to publish his first novel. In 1994, it all seems a million miles away. Six years down the line and the man Iron Maiden dubbed the Air Raid Siren laughs off, laughs off the tabloid coverage with a mixture of embarrassment and schoolboy humour. That was then, this is now. His fencing, along with his attempts at becoming the Tom Sharp of metal, with his two Lord Iffy Boat Race novels, have both been put on hold. His wife is expecting, and in turn Bruce is about to give birth to his second solo album. Somebody asked me the other day about my literary career, he snorts. I just said, have you heard the record? There's your answer. Basically, now it's music time. As if to prove his point, Bruce produces a DAT cassette of Shoot All The Clowns, a cut from the new album. It's a late addition to the other nine tracks which make up Bruce's second platter, tentatively titled the, uh, with the preposterous moniker of Balls To Picasso. Penned at the request of his US record company, Clowns is a crunchy mainstream rocker with a harmony-laden chorus. Bruce bounces around the control room and adds the odd piece of air guitar as it blasts out of the miniature mixing desk speakers. 
It's immediately apparent that it's heavier, slicker and thicker than anything on his 1990 tattooed millionaire opus. According to Bruce, the guitar should be heavier, dirtier and bigger. Time for a remix. Bruce has recorded two full albums prior to what looks like being the finished version of Balls to Picasso. Balls 1 was uh, recorded with UK rockers Skin as Bruce's backing band. It consisted of 13 songs bashed out two years ago between Maiden albums. For all intents and purposes, it was Tattooed Millionaire 2. Balls 2 was more elaborate. It all went down when Bruce went to LA to talk to producer Keith Olsen about the possibility of remixing the 13 tracks from his first attempt. This is where Bruce reached the point of no return with Maiden, but not before playing the second attempt to Maiden manager Rod Smallwood. Rod had been telling me that I had to go away and make an album that was different and artistic. He wanted it to be credible. He heard it and went, yeah, uh, that is really different. At that point I turned around to him and said that I figured that it meant that I couldn't do an album like that and stay in Maiden. It was like opening a Pandora's box. I had a simple choice. I could have pretended that I'd never made the album or I could admit, admit that I'd touched something different. We'd let something out of the box and I couldn't just stuff it back in there. If we released that kind of stuff then I knew that it would fuck it for me and, uh, and for Maiden and for both of us. Nobody who'd heard it would have believed me in Maiden anymore. I couldn't do both. Rod was the first guy I told. The split between Maiden and Bruce last year has been more than well documented in these very pages of Kerrang. Shocking a legion of Maiden fans in the process. With hindsight, Bruce is eager to clarify the whole caboodle. The thing is, you get to a point where, without any rhyme or reason, you feel the need to do something else. In the nicest possible sense, you feel like you don't belong there anymore. It's like the bloke who stays on a, a bit too long at a party. I started to feel a bit like that with Maiden. This record is part of the outgrowing process. I started to feel uncomfortable with it in the nicest possible way. It's got nothing to do with the personalities or the guys, despite everything that's been said. The last thing I want to do is damage Maiden's future prospects. When people hear this record, it is self-explanatory as to what happened. Balls to Picasso will surprise Maiden fans when it's released in June. It is diverse. It isn't, however, a Peter Gabriel album, bad or otherwise. Recruiting a local LA Latino metal act tribe of gypsies, Bruce has delivered an album which is heavy in every sense of the word. Written largely in the hotel on Santa Monica Pier, it deals with re um, reality as well as providing Bruce with a canvas for his eclectic musical taste. Introduced to the tribe by producer Shea Baby, an ex-Vietnam vet who was briefly a member of Iron Butterfly, before engineering albums by the likes of Whitesnake and Foreigner, Bruce forged a powerful partnership with tribe guitarist Roy Zed. A man who saw Maiden when they played Long Beach Arena on the Mammoth Power Slave Tour in 84. Roy's influence has restored the heaviness, heaviness which Bruce Sense was lacking on his previous two bites of making this album. The first single to hit the racks will be Tears of a Dragon. Ironically, it's a cut which could be Maiden at their most epic, despite a wildfire Latin percussion break in the middle. It's one of the few songs on the record that Maiden could play, affirms Bruce. I think they would do it differently though, again, without wanting to disappear up your own ass by being an artiste and all that bollocks. There's a spiritual side to this album which I could not have got out with uh, Maiden. Maiden is a heavy metal thing which isn't so much into being soft and gentle. We tried to put a lot of different colours on it, there's more soul and more groove, that's what tends to distinguish this record from other metal records. There's no sex on heavy metal records, by sex I don't mean lingerie or titties, I'm talking about things that have rhythm, things that make you feel horny in a subtle kind of way. That's what this record makes me feel at times. All the sex aside, what about the heavy metal crunches on offer? Some of it is monstrously heavy, beams the man. After all, the other stuff I did, we wanted to make an album that was bone-crunchingly heavy. It was a relief to get that heaviness on there. In fact, three songs on there were written on a freeway with Roy playing a tape of riffs on the car stereo and me screaming along. Roy was holding the tape recorder there. It was a wonder we weren't fucking killed, he guffaws. I suppose the thing about this record, and it's an overused term, it was that it was a cathartic record for me. I haven't had to delve 
down into myself like that since uh, Number of the Beast. Why was that? You get used to playing with bunches of people and get too comfortable, perhaps, explained Bruce. Making music has nothing to do with being comfortable. You've got to grapple with things and resolve them. That's the only reason people should buy your record, because they can watch you stretching and creaking. With every record, you should be furthering that process. Surely 12 years is long to leave it. To an extent, but it became very difficult to see the woods for the trees. We were trucking along and everyone was having a good time. I remember that during the Number of the Beast, the enthusiasm was massive. Me and Steve were having massive rucks every day about music and out of that process came some classic stuff. By about the fourth or fifth album, everyone was getting on. There wasn't any more of the screaming and shouting. I quite like getting on with people, so I didn't want to be ranting about it. We enjoyed ourselves and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. This record and this whole thing is different because it came along and bit me on the arse. I didn't think I was going to make a record and have to leave the band. It was a bit like walking down the high street and seeing God. I approached this record as though it was uh, going to be my last. I hope it isn't, but if that's the way it's going to be and that's the last thing, I would be very proud. So finally, what would Bruce do if this record turned out to be his last? I shall do something else. Bruce is asked about Blaze Bailey, his successor in Maiden. As far as Blaze and what I think of Maiden's future, well, I really do wish the guys all the success in the world, beams Bruce. I knew the guy when he was in Wolfsbane. I keep on bumping into him in the office and he's a really cool guy. He's full of beans and he's got bags of enthusiasm. Maiden are a world-class band and they would not have picked him unless there were some serious good vibes going on. I know initially Janik wouldn't have picked him. I spoke to Janik the other day and he said that he had been very sceptical about all these guys coming in. But with Blaze it was great. I hope for Maiden that it's the start of a renaissance. Has the split recharged the batteries for both camps? I think it has. I thought the potential was there for both sides when it was happening. I said that to Rod because I figured he could end up with two eyes for the price of one. That's a good deal for a Yorkshireman like Rod, he chortles. Seriously though, you get two facets of the things. You've got Maiden and you've got me. We aren't going to clash, but we are very different. We now move on to singles. Well, it looks like it's all over for the plucky new arrivals of singles. Being the utterly heartless lot we are, we've only gone and let Chris Watts loose on them. Blimey. Life can be so cruel. The first review is for Leatherface, Little White God on Domino. Reports of T-Boat's demise were true, but in retrospect, a little premature. Little White God might be the last single on a new label, but Frankie Stubbs is already contemplating more important manoeuvres. It's no bowl of flies, no I want the moon, but it can still be sent to Terrorvision, care of EMI, with Frankie's some serious disdain. Quirky arrangements and slaphead distortion, Frankie shits him, pal. Hull, Miss World on City Slang Records. Forget the Lennon Oko thing. Courtney is Nancy Spongeon to Kurt Sid Stupid. Courtney's great, no really. It's just that whole sound so feeble. I'm Miss World, somebody kill me, she wails with all the nasal rage of Dylan in a dress. Hull release a new album next month. It's going to just sound like the Partridge family on Elm Street, right? Mud Honey and Jimmy Dale Gilmore with their single Tonight, I think I'm going to go downtown on Sub Pop. Having failed to produce an album of any real merit, Mud Honey have instead opted for the puke joke reworking a hoary country and western tune with hideous garage non-production is notable only for the fact that it's dreadful. It's simply Mark Arm and Jimmy going nowhere in imperfect irony like jilted lovers at the altar. And it's not my fault that nobody buys Mud Honey records anymore. This review is a super chunk of the first part on City Slang. Yesterday's cool young blades now sounding blunt and half-hearted, and singing like the Cure's Robert Smith in 1994 means you've just run out of original ideas. Whale, with their single Hobo Humpin' Slowbo Babe on WEA Records. Jane's Addiction walk into a bar. They order a monotone dance beat. They stare at the wall for a while. 
Jane's Addiction, Leave the Bar. The single of the week this week is by Soul Asylum with their single Somebody to Shove on Columbia. A predictable choice, Susumi. Soul Asylum's runaway success last year might have diluted Dave, Dave Perna's Little Lost Gumby act and dating Silver Scream Starlets is no way to garner much sympathy. But he's still the most believable rock alchemist since Dwayne Allman. Re-re-released to promote a sold-out UK tour, the single is still worth your money for the unplugged version of the A-side, complete with violin, and a live knockabout of Without a Trace. A certifiable classic due to the opening line alone. I fell in love with a hooker, she laughed in my face. The decade's only pop single with any real grace. Metal charts and the number one album this week is Super Unknown Soundgarden. The number one single is I'm Broken Slaughtered by Pantera. Number one on the indie metal chart, No Mover Here, is Chaos AD Sepultura. And the readers chart this week is by Keith William O'Keefe from Croydon in Surrey. And he rather handily sent in a can of beer as a bribe. A particularly good choice in his part, except that he drunk it first. Thanks, pal. Anyway, his chart is allegedly good to pump iron to. Is that where the snap your neck part comes in? Number one in Keith's chart is Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck Prom. Two, Fired Up, Manitoba's Wild Kingdom. Three, Tears of Blood, Biohazard. Four, Welcome to the 90s, Souls at Zero. Five, Live for the Day, Uncle Sam. Six, Hit Squad, T-Ride. Seven, Geared and Primed by the Royal Court of China. Eight, Monkey Needs by Shotgun Messiah. Nine, Over and Out, Pantera. And ten, Richard Speck by the Chesterfield Kings. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to records. Records this week are unfortunately a little bit thin on the ground. Uh, not too much not too much going on. Anyway, we begin with Skyclad, Prince of the Poverty Line, and this record gets 4Ks and it's reviewed by Chris Watts. Efforts to fully explain Skyclad's barmier excesses have patently failed. These efforts should now be terminated. Skyclad have nothing left to explain. Forcing an audience to search beyond the kamikaze imagery of Earth Mother terrorism is a stupid ploy. Describing them as thinking man's metal is worse, serving only to alienate those who hate a smart ass with a guitar. All this after all, for a band who had to scrap a confirmed UK tour because their guitarist broke his hand in a pub brawl. All this too for a band who have just delivered perhaps their strongest and most diverse statement to date. Skyclad have nothing in common with Man of War. The two should never have toured together. No one should sniff at the chance of a Euro tour. But merging one extreme image to an even sillier one only saps Skyclad of their very sensible message, turning them instead into a freak circus. Skyclad, no matter how hard they try to be contrary, will always be a damn fine metal band. Man of War or a cartoon, it's time to separate Skyclad from the herd and simply accept the band as unique, individual and committed. There will always be a frivolous element to Skyclad. The live shows will always be alcohol-induced party fests of monumental proportions. It's almost impossible not to enjoy a Skyclad gig. The LPs, however, have sometimes been a patchier experience, yet Prince of the Poverty Line is as complete as it can get on this level. It's complete because it sounds comfortable. Martin Walkier was never really sure about the addition of violin on the first album, but it is a vital ingredient. Kath Howe looks like a crusty doll and has stepped into Friffa Jenkins' shoes with admir admirable confidence. Her contributions throughout Skyclad's fourth album are impressive, although she shines on Sins of Emissions and the One Piece puzzle. It would also be unfair not to mention Steve Ramsey's growing status as an accomplished and tasteful guitarist, firmly rooted in the melody of the old school with none of its gumby trickery. 
Predictably, it is Martin's vocals and wordplay which shape the record. There are some powerful sentiments, the true famine and the storming cardboard city, which again destroy accusations that Skyclad are dotty pagan romantics with a blind spot for contemporary. They are in fact as current as Clawfinger and twice as relevant. The album's masterstroke is Land of the Rising Slum, not so much a jig as a fresh shuffle triumph. It sees Skyclad heading down an intriguing musical avenue and one that should appease the rabid live following. Prince of the Poverty Line is generally a crushing success. It tends to sag towards the end, but overall the band urgently need to escape the confines of their restrictive business environment, but pray that this is, this is finally the springboard to well-earned acclaim. Party on. This next review is by Motorhead for Live at Brixton uh, on Roadrunner Records, and it gets, it gets 4Ks and it's reviewed by Mark Blake. Few bands have had to endure as much unauthorised plundering of their back catalogue as Motorhead. Live at Brixton is another unofficial release and is rumoured by some to be the album the band wanted to release instead of their last live record, No Sleep At All. Recorded in December 1987, it features the core of Lemmy, Wurzel and Phil Campbell alongside original drummer Filthy Animal Taylor during his second spell with the band. A collaboration cut short when he was withdrawn from service after, to quote the official line, his knees went. Live at Brixton is not a central motorhead, but if it's been a while since you indulged, it has enough senses, jolting, velocity and volume to evoke all kinds of fond memories. Squeeze your eyes shut against the roar of Metropolis or Eat the Rich, and you can picture Lemmy in a haze of smoke and filthy hair spun out like charcoal candy floss, labouring away behind the kit. The oldies, including Ace of Spades, are delivered with the usual bludgeoning lack of finesse and are matched by the ferocity of Traitor and Dogs, where the riffs come spluttering out of the guitars like mouthfuls of bile horrible. The album's release will probably have Lemmy gnashing his teeth once more against the injustices of the business, but the music does override the cash-in motives. Compared to the sheer rush of earlier live re releases, including No Sleep At All, this isn't worth going hungry for, then again, if you're feeling reckless. Finally, to round off this week's episode, we come to a piece called Death Metal. It's official. Man of War are the loudest band in the world. Death Reynolds is blown away by the black wind as the kings of metal crank it up to a record-breaking 130 decibels. Wimps and posers leave the hall. Hanover's Music Hall is an amazing rock and roll venue. From the outside, it looks like just another large, imposing German industrial site. Originally built just before World War II as a U-boat factory, the building was a prime target for Allied bombing but was never successfully hit. Depends into which the submarines were lowered to start their journey towards the North Sea, apparently remain intact beneath the main structure. But security guards keep the curious away. Within these cavernous walls on ground level, there now lies one of Germany's best rock venues. And today, March the 8th, the Music Hall has been chosen to host one of the most momentous occasions in the history of metal. This very evening, the Mighty Manowar are scheduled to play a gig on their Agony and Ecstasy tour. But the emphasis is on the afternoon's events, for the New York Metal Warriors are set to reclaim their crown as the loudest band in the world, a record held these last few years by a bunch of absolute nobodies called Immaculate Mary. There's pride at stake here. At 3.30pm, Manowar's manager Tom Miller gives a 5 minute warning. He insists that all non-working personnel vacate the hall, leaving just the band's road crew, two video crews and your trusty Kerrang duo to witness history in the making. Ear protection is advised but not enforced. Initially, the band's outro tape is blasted through the PA to ensure all the equipment is working properly. This captures the record of loudest PA in the world for the quartet. Fired up by this some five minutes later and dressed in full stage attire, Manowar arrive on stage and launch headlong into black wind, fire and steel. We all hold our breath. Have they done it? 
Earplugs or no earplugs, I'm sure I heard the band play louder their first time at Hammersmith. TV cameramen crowd round the two sound experts, one of whom is Germany's top man in this field. The announcement soon comes. The band playing together have registered a record-breaking 129 decibels. And incredibly, bassist Jerry DeMaio has managed to exceed even this with a ball-breaking 130.7 decibels. A Boeing 747 registers 140 decibels on takeoff. Joey and singer Eric Adams are all smiles back in the dressing room. They've broken the world record before now, but this time it was actually documented. When we did it at Hammersmith a few years ago, it wasn't officially recorded. The band could only claim to be the loudest band in the world. So this time, we didn't want to make the same mistake, says Eric. We had two guys with measuring equipment to ensure that they were both getting the same readings. But why wasn't there anyone here from the Guinness Book of Records? The Guinness people have very little to do with the setting of records. All they do is print things depending on their value to the publication, entertainment-wise, notes Joey. You don't actually set records for their benefit, you set them for the sake of setting them. If they choose to print it, then great. We did notify them of what we were doing in case they had any specific guidelines we could follow, but this was a re world record attempt for ourselves. See, there are people in this world who talk, and there are people in this world who do it. We do what we talk about. We've blown away every existing record there's ever been. Now we are officially, and nobody can dispute it, the kings of heavy metal. That means we make thunder inside a room. We make more thunder than any anyone can, at a louder level, yet as a cleaner, more pleasant, fun experience. People may well think they've heard us play louder, but it could be that we produced more distortion, so therefore it seemed louder. But the equipment we're using is higher quality. It's like turning up an expensive stereo. It's loud, but you don't perceive it as such. So what became of the previous world record holders, Immaculate Mary? Brother, those small-time fucking creeps had the good sense to split up. Obviously, there was no way such levels of decibel excess would be reached during the gig. We care about our fans too much, says Eric. We wouldn't want to permanently deafen somebody. Do you wear ear protection? No. See, if I wear earplugs in both ears, I'm not able to hear any high-end, which I need as a vocalist. They don't make earplugs to give you high-end, other than the plastic ones, which, which fall out as soon as you open your mouth. Manowar's following in the UK may have become more selective of late, but their audiences are increasing in size all the time in Europe, particularly here in Germany. We're at that point in our career where our status is just going up and up, states Joey. We sell more records each year and play to more people, but you know, I hope we don't become trendy to like. Nowadays it's almost a disgrace to have a backline, and these new guys are playing for amps no bigger than my mother's microwave. You know, I can't listen to this new dog shit. Grunge? Sponge? What's it supposed to be? It's just a wank. It's dog shit. People say it's new metal. What's it got to do with metal? It's not even false metal. Come on, fucking poison are even heavier than the fucking shit these guys are playing. When we used to say death to false metal, we were talking about all the poser music, but this new stuff doesn't even come up to that standard. Is there a word for something beneath shit? You can't fool the real music fans. These new metal assholes will get away with it for a while, but once people really listen to it, they'll discover guys who can't sing, guitarists who can't play, and drummers who just sound like they're farting. It's not music. This band offers quality entertainment. We offer a good sound, good music, a total value for money package. What I think has carried us forward more than anything is that it's not hard to get into us, and our fans are welcoming to others. But the announcement of a date at London Marquee for the end of this European tour has fueled rumours that the band is on the wane. DeMaio smiles again. It's strictly our choice to play the Marquee. We've never played a club in London before because we went straight into Hammersmith. We want to play the Marquee because it's a legendary venue. It'll be an honour to play there. It's the last gig of the tour. Our aim is to go in there and take the roof off that shack, brother. Back in the US, Manowar will soon be turning their attention towards their first album for new label Geffen. Having recently switched from Atlantic, 
Record labels have always been a problem for the loudest band in the world. When we sign on that dotted line, we're always promised the moon, but just end up with a telescope and the message, that's close enough, remarks Eric. We've been together 13 years now. We deserve worldwide promotion. Did you have any say in the recently released compilation Best of Man of War, The Hell of Steel on Atlantic? We had nothing to do with it. It was a contractual thing. It's got the worst cover ever. I mean, what the hell do those girls chained up represent? We don't chain up women. We let them loose, says Eric. It's weird to be optimistic about a new record deal after having so many Joey Shrugs. But we are. There's always a good vibe at the start. Before, the only problem in America was that people just didn't get the fact that we weren't Winger or White Lion. We were not like any other Atlantic bands. This is Man of War. As a matter of fact, where are all those bands now? We're still here. Just one question remains. How does Joey feel about becoming the world's undisputed loudest individual musician? Righteous. All three of us crease up in hysterics. And that concludes this week's episode of the pod. Next week, where I hope there won't be any wimps or posers, the almighty, more studio shenanigans. The greatest show on earth, with no mention of band names, but a picture of Axl Rose and James Hetfield. So, greatest show on earth. Guns N' Roses, Metallica touring together, obviously. Plus, Taiketo, Black Sabbath, Soul Asylum, Caius, Motley Crue, and the Black Crows. Thank you so much for listening. I've been your host, Stephen. I hope you all have a good week and uh, see you next week. Cheers. Bye.